This is SG2 Perspectives, a conversation with SG2 experts and industry thought leaders about the biggest trends in healthcare and what we expect that's going to mean for the future of healthcare delivery. We tend to focus very much on the medication and its cost, and there's so many more things related to the operationalization. Also, there's a little bit of let's see how the market continues to develop because there's one more molecule that's in a reasonable time frame that we should have into this year, early next year, and see what is the best option or is there some differentiation between the products and does that further alter the way in which the payer community goes about them. All of those things are factoring into the equation and so much more beyond just the approval of a medicine. Welcome to SG2 Perspectives. I'm your host for today, Jamie Zage, and I am really excited about today's episode, which is focused on Alzheimer's disease. This is something that I have followed for many years since I did postdoctoral work in Chicago early on, even before joining SG2. I'm joined today by two of Vizian's experts, Stephen Lucio and Kate Zentner, who are going to talk about the emergence of new therapeutics in the management of Alzheimer's and the challenges and the benefits that they bring. Stephen and Kate, give us an overview of this new Alzheimer's drug. Why is everybody so excited about it? Jamie, thank you so much. We have had some therapies for Alzheimer's. The unfortunate thing is that they just primarily deal with the symptoms of Alzheimer's in a modest way. They don't alter the disease progression. And so that's why there's been so much interest in drugs that would actually alter and maybe even reverse the disease. And the beta amyloid has been in the center of that. And so Kate and I will talk about there's actual products that presumably do that right now. But there's been a lot of excitement, not only because of the potential that they provide, but also because of the way in which they were approved. It really is important, not only in the context of these Alzheimer's medications, but a lot of other new medicines, to talk about the accelerated approval pathway that you may have heard a lot about from FDA. And that's one of the several mechanisms that FDA can bring drugs to market more rapidly when there's a critical need. Basically, it involves approving medications on a somewhat conditional basis and based upon a surrogate marker. You're not looking to make sure that the disease fully is resolved or stopped, but you look at an indicator, some index that would likely lead us to that conclusion. That's what the accelerated approval is, and that's how these Alzheimer's medications have come through. The problem is that the first product, the predecessor to Lakembi, Aduhelm, which is now in year three of being available, was the first mechanism, first molecule that came through targeting the amyloid beta plaques. And it had a very circuitous approval process because it did come before the FDA since there was such great interest in it and it's novel. The evidence for the success of that drug really wasn't great. So when the advisory committee looked at the drug, they said, yeah, we really don't think this merits approval. Would an accelerated approval be possible? Usually accelerated approvals come earlier in the development process. At that point, FDA said, no, we've already set the stage of what we want you to answer. And so that's not a possibility. Two months later, the FDA came back and approved Edgyhelm by the accelerated approval pathway. It colored subsequent products as well and the way in which we view these medications and even further accelerate the level of hesitancy and scrutiny of them. And that continues to still affect the way in which we look at these medications, irrespective of whether they actually are clinically viable or not. That has added a little bit of uncertainty and confusion to this circumstance. The main thing that we need to keep in mind for these Alzheimer's medicines is that we do have to be very cognizant of how they're approved. We have to be very diligent in terms of documenting their success and efficacy. And a lot of that is also being managed mandated by other entities like CMS, Medicare, especially 
for Angie Helm and somewhat for Lakimbi has put some pretty significant criteria. That's great. Kate, from a provider perspective, anything that you're hearing in terms of the provider excitement on this side? We're getting a lot of questions about it these days, and many are really just trying to figure out what structures they need to have in place and how they need to go about assessing not only whether or not they're going to actually offer these therapeutics, but how do they transition? Say they've been doing it in the context of clinical trials. What do you have to do to make it so that it's actually available from a clinical perspective? Because those are not the same things, as well as how are we going to handle the influx of interest from patients? This is such a devastating disease. Almost 7 million people in the U.S are estimated to have Alzheimer's disease. And you really don't talk to anybody who hasn't been affected, whether it's their family, a loved one, a friend, really broad impact here. What we're hearing is that this is an inflection point where you have patients who maybe wouldn't have wanted to get that official diagnosis because it was just such a scary idea that if I have this, there's really nothing I can do about it. That math is changing a little bit in terms of patients' interest in getting that. So it's not just whether or not they're gonna have to offer the therapeutic, but it's that whole diagnostic pathway upstream dream that I think providers are trying to grapple with how they're going to deal with that interest now. And as we start to see more therapeutics beyond just the chemi become available. That's an interesting point. And what we've talked about over the years is the fact that these incremental advancements in the therapeutic, it allows us to now maybe move a little bit further upstream in the diagnosis and catch more people. It's the small incremental advances to get further and further upstream. That's that tipping point. And this is something that I've been looking at since my time here at SG2 is thinking about that progression and how we've had PET scanning for over 10 years for dementia, but nothing that you could do about it and not really to change the course of the disease. And so are we getting there? Maybe not yet, but what do you guys think in terms of what the next thoughts in line on that are? Jamie, as you mentioned PET scans, I remember almost 10 years ago when I first came to SG2 and you and I were talking about this, how they were available, but the payer coverage wasn't there because unless you were making a differential diagnosis, nothing that we could do about it. PET scans are costly. One of the things for the future that I'm really hoping to see that is starting to happen is having some alternative, perhaps less costly ways of diagnosing patients, whether it's blood tests that currently can detect whether it's a little bit of amyloid burden or genetic predisposition to have Alzheimer's disease. None of those are ready yet to make an official diagnosis, but you can see hopefully what that future looks like where our choices 10, 15 years from now aren't just going to be PET scans or lumbar punctures. It's going to be broader and more accessible. Hopefully that sort of paves the way both to support the clinical research and also make the clinical delivery less costly. Absolutely. Now, Kate, you touched on the cost and bringing the total cost of care down in this space. And one of the things that we saw when Lequembe came out was this excitement around it. Employers started adding it to their covered prescriptions and the health plans that they were offering. But now we're realizing how expensive it is. And there's this backtracking of, oh, do we really want to cover this? So tell me a little bit about how the finances are changing around this. As we think about just the cost of these new therapeutics coming out, 
specifically looking at Lakembi since that's the most recent one and the full FDA approval for that. I've seen a few estimates all over the board. Some are estimating that treatment costs could be in the mid 30,000 annually, all the way up to 90,000 plus annually per patient, depending on how broad the people doing these analyses try to get as far as the downstream impact. But a common thread between all of them is that the utilization and the cost isn't just going to be about the infusion. There was a research letter published in JAMA in May of this year that was estimating for the Medicare population, what could that annual potential spending look like for Lakembi? And it's not just the biweekly infusions. It's the three or so MRIs that you're surely going to need in the first year for the monitoring. It's probably the PET scan since we have to show that you actually have amyloid burden. E&M visits, serum testing for APOE4, since if you have two copies of that, much higher risk for ARIA. We're even going to have ARIA-related hospitals very small number, but it's still there. So you can kind of just see this start to balloon out. And that's why even though it's out there that the list price for this medication, probably $26,000, $27,000 annually, those estimates get so much bigger than that. So Stephen, any thoughts on your side? What you were describing is the uncertainty exactly who are the best patients, how do you identify the best patients, and how do you put all of this into the overall equation of what is best for patient population. That's what we're definitely seeing from our providers. They are having the formulary discussions right now. There hasn't been an interest in a rapid adoption necessarily of these products. It has been an understanding of, given the limitations we described, identify the patients that would be the most appropriate for this. We tend to focus focus very much on the medication and its cost, and there's so many more things related to the operationalization. Also, there's a little bit of, let's see how the market continues to develop because there's one more molecule that's in a reasonable time frame that we should have into this year, early next year. There also may be a sense of when I have not just Lakembi, but the next molecule, maybe I can look at them in totality and see what is the best option or is there some differentiation between the products and does that further alter the way in which the payer community goes about them. All of those things are factoring into the equation and so much more beyond just the approval of a medicine. Kate, I know we've talked for years about how there's really not been an emphasis by our neurosciences programs to invest in Alzheimer's and memory programs because there hasn't been much that you could do. Without those programs in place, you can see why there might be hesitancy to adopt. I don't know, Kate, what you think about how that's impacting it. We have talked a little bit about the cost side of things. Medicare has already said they're going to reimburse the actual medication as VA. Commercial payers, it's still iffy. The diagnostic side as well, the picture is starting to change a little bit just because now at least on the Medicare side, for a while back, there had been a national coverage determination for the PET scans where you really couldn't get it at all unless just very specific instances. Then it was allowed where you could have it if you were doing a clinical trial, you could have one in your life as a Medicare beneficiary. But now the thought is that that might be changing a little bit and becoming a little bit looser to allow where you don't necessarily have to be in the study to do it. And also if the national coverage determination goes away, that doesn't mean that everyone has to cover it uniformly. It just means that locally. But the diagnosis picture is shifting a little bit. Jamie, you mentioned just dementia models overall, where at the beginning of planning processes where we've been working with neurosciences programs, it might start out at the top of the list, but it always falls, which is a shame really purely because of, of the finances. One of the things that I'm actually really excited about, CMS's CMMI just launched the new guide model. 
going to be an eight-year model where they're going to be focusing on care coordination and management, as well as caregiver support and education, all delivered by an interdisciplinary team. When we talk about successful, robust programs, that's what they've looked like. It's just been how they finance it. It's always been very piecemeal with philanthropy dollars, grant funding, all that kind of stuff. Now, what they're going to do through guide model, they will be giving participants a per beneficiary per month payment ongoing, as well as up to $2,500 annually for respite services for caregivers, if it's applicable. And my understanding too, is that if you're a new program in certain situations, there may be some support for you to get it off the ground as well, which is wonderful. This is really exciting. We're still learning more about the details of it, but it's something where if you're interested, programs can apply fall 2023, winter of 2024. And if you're established already, your first year will start mid next year in 2024. But they're also creating creating a pathway. Again, if you're a brand new program, you're not really put together yet, you'll have kind of a year to get that together and launch in 2025. I mean, we've been tracking some of those really innovative programs for years that have used those care coordination models. So it'd be nice to see how this happens at a national scale. We see that it works for specific markets. We've seen specific programs that really show that benefit, but now we'll get to see how it works nationally. So I'm excited. I want to shift gears a little bit and get actual therapeutics here and the promising drugs. Stephen, you alluded to there are other drugs in the pipeline. I'm curious what you're watching and anticipating coming in the next couple of years that our listeners should also pay attention to. We do expect, whether it's late this year, early next year, another one of these beta amyloid products coming to market, another monoclonal that looks like it has statistically significant benefit, whether it's that clinically dramatic still remains to be seen. There are other products in the pipeline that beyond just trying to bind the plaques, maybe look at altering the synthesis of those or doing something else. There's also been a reframing of the of hypothesis that it's just these plaques. As with many different diseases, the more we understand, the more we realize we don't understand. And there's various pathways that are afoot. That other molecule coming in the next six to nine months, we may see a little bit of a pause until we are able to get some of these other molecules from phase three and maybe start addressing some of the other pathways that might also be contributing to it. As a pharmacist, I love to think that everything's about medications. It is not. Treating something like dementia and Alzheimer's is so holistic. Trying to understand what circumstances might help you be more resilient to developing the disease or getting care as quickly as you can. It's those types of strategies that are now being looked at in a more comprehensive fashion that truly are going to make the difference. Right. It's so multifactorial and all the different environmental and genetic pathways. It's really quite complex. And I just don't know that we know enough about how the brain works yet. That's the holy grail of neuroscience's research. So knowing that providers are trying to adapt, there's a little bit of caution. But I'm curious, as we look towards the new care coordination, all of these things that are starting to come and put a little bit of a groundswell around this, that tipping point, Kate, that you talked about, what are some of the other things that providers can be doing to better prepare themselves as these new approaches and therapeutics come onto the market? The reality is most programs are not going to be participating in any voluntary model over the next couple of years. One of the big issues with that going forward is going to continue to be workforce. We just don't have enough neurologists or geriatricians 
to handle this size of a population, which means that primary care is going to continue to get the brunt of it as they have. And many of them really don't feel comfortable with the diagnosis or the management of Alzheimer's and other dementias. So anything we can really do to support those providers with better tools that can be used in primary care. I know there are some interesting new iPad or other technology-based solutions they can put in their toolkit to help with that. But also thinking about ways to improve access to specialists, whether it's Project Echo, which is a model that's been used in a few tricky areas to connect providers to specialists for education, case review, all those sorts of things. Memory clinics that use team-based approaches to sort of broaden how many patients they can take on. Virtual is going to play a big role in this as well. So it's going to probably be a piecemeal, multifaceted solution, but we've really got to be supporting primary care since most of the action is really going to fall to them. I completely agree. And Kate has such a much better insight into this. That's one of the key elements where we're not really well positioned in healthcare to separate of a drug or a new technology or a diagnostic. We don't have that enduring education and support to help either primary care providers understand how they can get connected or help patients understand what should be the reasonable expectation. And we're here talking about the excitement of these new therapies, but it really highlights the fact that we don't get funding to where it's needed and we don't have educational mechanisms to really get the insight to the public, the patients, providers, people who are not specialists to help them navigate the system and still drive outcomes, even if it's a piecemeal process. We absolutely have to do that because it is those other entities that will be trying to get people to the right place so that they can get the benefit of these medications, even if it's modest, but they don't miss it before it's too late and they're no longer able to avail themselves of these technologies. That's the ongoing challenge that we have in thinking about this from a population strategy. And it's a really great way to close us out, Stephen. Thank you. I think we could have kept talking and Stephen and I probably really could have geeked out on the science here, but that's for a different audience. And appreciate Stephen and Kate, you being here with us today to talk about these new advances in the care of our Alzheimer's patients. Thank you to our listeners on SG2 Perspectives. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review us, and or follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn at SG2 Healthcare. And if you want to talk more about innovative healthcare strategies, you can always email me at sg2perspectives at sg2.com. Finally, SG2 is a Vizient company, and there are a bunch of Vizient podcasts that you might like. You can find them at Vizient backslash podcasts. Have a great day.